This is KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Coming up next, KZYX will broadcast the May lecture of the Mendocino College Symposium. This month's lecture features Professor Rachel Donham with a talk called From Zombies to Planet B, Environmental Toxicology and Justice. She gave this talk via Zoom on May 6th, 2021. So we're going to get started just with an overview to let you know where we're going. We'll be starting off talking about what environmental toxicology is and looking at a historical perspective. There's a lot of really interesting things that have occurred during our movement through history, and it's interesting and fun to see what humans have gained in terms of knowledge from some of those historical events. As we move through history, we'll talk about the field of environmental justice, and we're going to use a case study called the Warren County Case Study to understand how environmental justice as a movement got started. And we'll look through that lens as we talk about some other case studies, one being mercury in Clear Lake, so a really local case study for us. We'll talk about lead in drinking water, focusing on Flint, Michigan, and we'll talk about climate change. And then we'll leave with different books that I wanted to mention are really, really interesting and could be really informative if you want to know more. So what is environmental toxicology? Sometimes I tell people what I got my degree in and they look at me in much confusion. So environmental toxicology is a multidisciplinary field that studies the adverse effects of both natural as well as synthetic chemicals. Now, sometimes when we talk about synthetic chemicals, I'll call them anthropogenic. That really means human-generated chemicals. Your scope as a toxicologist could be very small. So you could be looking at a chemical, a molecular interaction within a cell. So really thinking about how a chemical tells a cell what to do. That could be telling the cell to die. It could be telling the cell to produce protein or in some cases telling the cell to become cancerous. You could have a really broad aspect as an environmental toxicologist too and study ecosystems or the biosphere. So looking at how chemicals impact our whole planet and all the living organisms on our planet. I also mentioned that environmental toxicology is multidisciplinary. And what that means is you could come towards studying environmental toxicology from a lot of different fields or a lot of different areas of specialization. So for example, you might wanna study environmental toxicology because you're an environmental scientist and maybe you studied freshwater, that's what this limnology means. Maybe you study the oceans, that's what oceanography refers to, or maybe you're a soil scientist. You could also be a biologist, someone interested in looking at living organisms on our planet. You could be a big picture biologist, someone like an ecologist who's looking at connections real world in the biosphere. You could also be a microbiologist, someone studying invisible life forms on our planet. You might be really interested in knowing that a lot of those life forms that we can't even see produce some of the most toxic substances on our planet. Now, all of this refers, all of this study is looking at chemicals and their adverse effects. So it's probably not surprising that we need chemists to study environmental toxicology. So organic and inorganic chemists and environmental chemists are very important. And we're getting data from all these fields when we study these chemicals. And so again, it's not surprising, right? We need advanced math. We need statistics and we need computer monitoring and modeling to be able to put all this together. 
Finally, you might come at studying environmental toxicology from a classical toxicological background where you're interested in knowing how a chemical is moved through environmental compartments, what it does to a biological system, or maybe you're interested in risk assessment, trying to set safety standards for workers in industry or trying to get a chemical that you know is hazardous banned. So all of these disciplines really feed into our understanding of what chemicals are doing. Now, I told you I wanted to study the history and tell you a little bit about the history because some of this I think is really cool and really fascinating. Humans have understood about toxins for a long period of time. So I wanted to start off here with the ancient Egyptians who had this magnificent article written. It's called the Ebers. It was written on Egyptian papyrus sometime around 1552 BC. And it was basically like an encyclopedia. It talked about what life was like in ancient Egypt. It also served as a medical tome. So it talked about how to deal with things that someone in ancient Egypt might come into contact with throughout their lives. For instance, how do you deal with a crocodile bite? Not something that we necessarily would have to think about in Mendocino County, but in ancient Egypt, that was really important. So was toenail pain, apparently, and the focus of dentistry. Most important for our talk today, they had a lot of descriptions of toxicology. They knew about venomous animals. They knew about poisons. One of the things though that they didn't know a lot about was lead. And lead is a heavy metal that we'll talk about today. But one of the things that you might see often when you see pictures of ancient Egyptians is that very dramatic black eye makeup. It's very shiny, it almost looks liquid. That's actually made in part by lead. And so they didn't understand that lead was super, super toxic, but they certainly used it. Um, they also made a lot of children's toys out of lead. They made cooking utensils out of lead. And a lot of their irrigation was done through lead pipes. So even though they were really advanced for their time, they still didn't have a complete understanding of what that material was actually doing to them. All right, I know I have somebody who likes to talk about wars and naval ships. And I know this might sound like it doesn't really connect with environmental toxicology, but I'm gonna tell you how it does. So we're still in the BC, 672 BC, 190 BC, and we're looking at military strategy. So the Byzantines in 672 BC developed this chemical mix called Greek fire. And as you can see, there's other names for it, sea fire, Roman fire, war fire. But this was something that would burn on water. So I'm trying to put myself in the place of these soldiers on these giant wooden ships. And you know the seas are rough, so right? They're trying to keep their footing. And I'm sure that the people fighting them are throwing arrows and spears and swords, et cetera, at them. And then suddenly, not only is your wooden boat on fire, but the water around your boat is on fire. I'm pretty sure that's a really good scare tactic. Um, Hannibal, who's probably better known for his ride of the elephants, um, he was known in battles to the day before a battle or early the morning of a battle, send out people to collect venomous snakes and scorpions. And they would collect them in the morning because they're cold blooded. And so they wouldn't be very active. And they would put them in clay pots and seal the top lightly. So during the battle, they would bring these clay pots on the boat and lob them into the boat of the people they were battling. So now imagine that. You're on a boat that's rocking in the ocean. People are trying to spear you. And suddenly now you're dancing around probably pretty agitated venomous snakes and scorpions. So it was a pretty good wartime strategy. We're going to move more into modern times and talk about this man named Paracelsus. 
And he tends to be called the father of toxicology because when he was studying medicine and toxins, he came up with some statements that we still use today. And those statements are that all substances are poisons. There are none that are not. Dose differentiates between a poison and a remedy. Now in toxicology, like other fields, we like to shorthand stuff. Maybe we're lazy, I don't know, but we shorten that to the dose makes the poison. But this principle is really important. It means that anything at the right dose is toxic. So oxygen in too high of a dose is toxic. So is water. If you drink too much of it in a very short period of time, don't worry about getting your eight ounces a day, right? That's all good for you. But when we think about dose, part of what makes up dose is body size. So in toxicology, when we're thinking about risk, we always think about the small ones, right? Think about babies and children because per body weight, they likely will get a larger dose of a chemical. So for safety's sake, a lot of times you'll see children's dosages being very, very different. But keep that in mind, the dose makes the poison. Typically, we talk about a higher dose, more of a chemical causing more of a problem. And that is the case in the majority of situations. However, we have discovered that there are certain things that cause greater responses in smaller doses. So this has opened up a new area of interest and a new area of study in toxicology. We're gonna move into the Renaissance now, and we're gonna be talking here about Catherine Medici. She was married at the age of 14 to Henry II, the King of France. Now it's very well known that she had a really rough childhood, um, but she was also very protective of her sons. And so it was widely known that she would employ poisons to kill off the rivals that her sons had for the, the, for the throne. So she was part of this whole idea of the French period of poisoners. Um, she employed people who knew a lot about poisons. She had these leather gloves that she had made custom for her. And at the time, it was normal for those gloves to be dipped into different scented products so they smelled nice. Um, it was also common for her to have her helpers dip them into different kinds of poisons like arsenic so that she could then very happily greet visiting dignitaries that she didn't really like. Now she lived in a palace with her husband and in that palace, there is this room that has all these little cubby holes. Now I'm sure that a lot of these carried things that were just trinkets or, or documents that were important for the family, but there's a lot of speculation too that this is where she kept her poisonous chemicals. Um, so she had a stockpile on hand at any point in time. So if an unwelcome visitor came by, she could greet them in her own special way. By the way, I think it's kind of interesting to note, all of the most famous poisoners in history are women. Um, women tend to be the ones who don't mind a slow revenge. All right, moving a little forward in time, we're gonna now talk about the United States and some historical things that have occurred here. I'm guessing most of you have heard about the Salem witch trials that occurred in Salem, Massachusetts. At the time, people were seen in the streets having very strange behaviors. They were having hallucinations. Some of them were having seizures and some of them were developing this very dramatic gangrene in their hands and their feet. Now at the time, the people of Salem thought this had to do with witchcraft. 
And so tragically, a lot of people were put on trial um, and considered to be witches. And those who were suffering the impacts of hallucinations and seizures were claiming that these individuals, mostly women, were witches who had cursed them. It's taken some time for researchers to really figure out what was going on during the Salem witch trials. And it turns out there was a fungus called ergot that very commonly grows on rye and wheat. During this period of time, they were not able to store those cereals well. And so ergot took over the crop. Now, ergot produces a chemical called an alkaloid, an ergot alkaloid, which is actually a precursor to LSD which kind of makes the hallucinations and the seizures make a lot of sense. So the Salem witch trials had nothing to do with witchcraft. They had everything to do with a toxin. Um, unfortunately and tragically, that resulted in about 40,000 people dying from those contaminated rye and wheat crops. We're gonna shift back to England. We're now in the year 1788. And if you can think about England at that time, um, most people had a chimney, probably everyone had a chimney, and that was what they used for their source of heat for their homes and for cooking. Now, if you have a wood-burning stove, you know that that chimney that you have can get covered inside with soot and resin from the wood that you're burning. When that happens, it's problematic for two reasons. One is that it dampens the amount of oxygen that can get to the fire, so your fire's not effectively burning. And the second problem is that that buildup can cause fires. And so it was really common in this time for people to employ children who were called chimney sweeps to go down into the chimneys and to clean out all of that soot and other residue that had built up. That was seen as something that was very important. And certainly it was when we think about maintaining those fires and when we think about making sure there weren't house fires. And because the chimneys were narrow, very, very young children were employed in this activity. Percival Pott was a physician at the time, and he noticed that a lot of these very young boys in particular were coming in with a rare type of cancer. And he put it together that their job of cleaning out the chimneys was leaving them contaminated with soot and those different chemicals from the wood. And that was actually what was generating the cancers. So we call him our first public health epidemiologist or our first occupational toxicologist. He was someone that was able to make a connection between what these individuals were doing for their job and a health outcome and look at the chemical that was causing the problem. In response, they passed the Chimney Sweeps Act of 1788, which sets an eight-year minimum for people to be chimney sweeps. Now, obviously, this is still child labor. This is not something any of us would think was great. But at the time, this was monumental. This was one of the first laws or acts that went into effect, really looking at protecting workers from toxic chemicals. We're going to come back into America here in 1929 and talk about prohibition. So prohibition was a time where alcohol was illegal in the United States. But if you happen to take a medicine with alcohol in it, that was fine. So this alcoholic tonic called Jamaica Ginger was said to treat things like headaches and stomach issues and depression and all sorts of things. And so people were drinking this, probably it helped in some way, but mostly they were drinking it to get the alcohol. During its production though, one of the main ingredients, which was castor oil, was replaced by another chemical that we're just gonna call TOCP. 
So castor oil became too expensive and TOCP replaced it. Now I want to point out a couple of things that are really important about this chemical structure. One is this C is a carbon and there's a lot of carbons that are hidden in these structures that they're not showing you. And this P is a phosphate group along with the oxygens here. That means that this entire chemical is called an organophosphate. Um, this is a chemical that was very commonly used in different types of nerve gases in world wars. And just like those nerve gases that impacted the central nervous system, it led to what we call peripheral neuropathy. So people would lose sensation in their fingers, hands, toes, and feet. Sometimes there was a burning painful sensation. Sometimes they couldn't feel them at all. That type of central nervous system damage because of an OP or organophosphate exposure is called OPIDN, kind of an alphabet soup, but it means organophosphate induced delayed neuropathology. The delayed was also important. So that damage that happened with the central nervous system could take weeks to months to occur. We think over the period of time that that TOCP was in that Jamaican ginger that about 50,000 adults were impacted just in the United States. Um, it gained the name of Jamaican jerk because people had very unsteady or jerky gaits when they were walking because of that neuropathology. This made the news, which it's horrible, right, that it happened, but it's great that it made the news because it started to let people know that they could be exposed to chemicals in their food or their drink that could cause permanent problems. So we're seeing, as we move through this history, humans are gaining an awareness, right, of, of chemicals and what they can do. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposium here on KZYX. Today's speaker is Professor Rachel Donham on environmental toxicology and environmental justice. Probably one of the most famous environmental scientists was Rachel Carson. She wrote this wonderful book called Silent Spring. Now by training, she was actually a marine biologist. She was studying animals in the ocean, but she was also a birder. And she was noticing that as DDT was starting to be used more as an, as an insecticide and an herbicide on crops, that there were less and less birds making songs in the spring. And so that's where the title of her book comes from, Silent Spring. She was making a connection between chemicals like DDT and bird die-offs. So this book came out in 1962. Um, it's one of the books that I would encourage you to read if you're interested about this field because it's very eloquently written and it contains a tremendous amount of really useful information. So this was 1962. In 1969, we had another giant event in the United States that made the news, and that was the Cuyahoga River in Ohio catching on fire. Now, some of you may have heard this song, Burn On, by Randy Newman. He was singing about this river catching on fire. This river had a tremendous amount of industry around it, and at the time, it was kind of the normal practice that waste products were just dumped in the river. One of the sayings that was really horrible at the time that we now know is not great um, was that dilution is the solution to pollution. And so it was really thought if you just took all those toxic things and you dump them in water, eventually it will just disperse out into the ocean and it will be so small in amount, it won't cause problem. Now I will say this uh, June 22nd fire at the river, again, this made international news, 
but there were at least 13 other times that that river caught on fire. Now between Rachel Carson's book and between this Cuyahoga River, we saw a lot of people very motivated to protect the environment. And that is where we see in 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency coming into play through President Nixon's executive order. So up until this time, we didn't really have anything that looked at what chemicals were in the environment that researched their impacts on humans and other animals or educated people in industry about what those toxic chemicals were doing. So this is a huge step forward. The EPA obviously exists still today and its job is to enforce national standards for safety through fines, sanctions, and bans. And we've just talked about a lot of different toxic chemicals already. So you might be thinking that the EPA has spent a lot of time banning chemicals, but in reality, since 1970, they've only banned five chemicals. One is the polychlorinated biphenyls, which is a mouthful. We're gonna call them the PCBs. They were banned in 1979. Dioxin was banned in that same year. And if you're thinking, I've heard of dioxins before, that was one of the major contaminants in Agent Orange. Asbestos was banned in 1989. Hexavalent chromium was banned in 1990. That's the chemical that Aaron Brockovich made famous. And the chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs were banned in 1994. Now, tragically, when the EPA bans a chemical, it doesn't mean that it can't ever be used again. In fact, in some cases, certain applications are still, uh, are still legal. So some of these chemicals are still being used in industry today. Now, why would we want to ban a chemical? Well, typically we want to ban a chemical because we know that it has a direct negative impact. So maybe it's causing death as an endpoint. But sometimes chemicals are really, really sneaky in terms of their mechanism of action. And so I wanted to talk here for a minute about epigenetic markers or epigenetic marks. So what you're seeing here in purple is a DNA chromosome. And if we unwind that chromosome and we get into this structure that is that double helix of DNA, that twisted ladder that you may have seen, the importance of DNA is that it codes for different proteins that our bodies need. So these proteins could be antibodies, they could be enzymes, they could be messengers that turn processes on or off, but those proteins are coded for by regions of the DNA called genes. Epigenetic markers like methyl groups, it kind of looks like a Mickey Mouse with a beard here, can attach to parts of the DNA. When they do, they can cause that gene that coded for a protein to be hidden, so the body can no longer produce that protein, or it can cause one that should be hidden to be exposed, so now the body can make that protein. This is not a genetic mutation, so nothing on the DNA has been changed just the accessibility of the gene coding for a protein has been changed. Now what can happen or what can cause this to happen, um, in main part, we're looking here at environmental chemicals, at certain drugs or pharmaceuticals. But the endpoints to epigenetic markers are huge. We know that some of these cause cancer, autoimmune diseases, mental disorders, and diabetes. The other thing that's really important to note about epigenetics is that these can be inherited. So even though it's not a genetic change, it's not a mutation, it can be inherited through multiple generations. So what are some epigenetic drivers? Well, stress is an epigenetic driver. So 
Unfortunately, right, we're living in a stressful time right now. That stress is laying down epigenetic marks on our DNA. Addiction, whether that means heroin, opioids, cigarettes, alcohol, those types of addictions change brain chemistry. They also lead to epigenetic marks. PCBs, which we'll come back to in a second, and DES are also epigenetic drivers. Now, DES is a, an abbreviation for diethylstilbestrol. This actually was a drug that was prescribed to pregnant women in the 40s through the early 70s. And it was a synthetic estrogen. And the thought was that it would prevent miscarriage. But what it actually did was change the DNA through those epigenetic markers of the sons and daughters of women who were pregnant at the time. Now, this wasn't discovered until those babies reached maturity and they started to notice that women were having rare cancers. Um, and doctors made the connection that their mothers had taken DES. So we call those women DES daughters. Again, their mother took the drug during pregnancy. They have the genetic issues, the cancer. There are DES sons and DES daughters. We also now have DES granddaughters and DES grandsons. Again, multiple generations can be influenced by these epigenetic markers. BPA is listed there. You've probably all seen something about BPA. It's used in plastics. Phthalates, I know this word looks like phthalates, um, but you ignore the P and the H, it's just phthalates. Um, these are often found in synthetic fragrances. And then finally, thinking about cigarettes, they contain quite a few chemicals that are all epigenetic drivers, nicotine, arsenic, chromium, formaldehyde, that PAH stands for polyaromatic hydrocarbons. All of those chemicals will put marks on the DNA of unborn children. Now, the good news about epigenetics, before you start to call your grandparents or your parents and yell at them about past behaviors, is that these are reversible in many cases. So having a low-stress life, eating a good diet, having exercise, those types of things can actually remove those epigenetic markers, which is pretty cool. Now, one of the other things I talked about in the um, paragraph that described the talk was what about zombies? Believe it or not, in my microclass, we do sometimes have this conversation, what about zombies? We also have this conversation about natural products because you'll often hear claims that natural products are safe, so you should use natural rather than synthetic chemicals. I wanna point out quickly that the most toxic substance known on our planet by weight is a natural chemical. It's the botulinum A toxin. It comes from a bacterium called Clostridium botulinum. Um, that is what is used in part to make Botox. Now, there are really great uses of Botox. It's really helpful for migraines, et cetera. Um, but I have here, right, the funny little spoof that if you use too much Botox, you have that kind of plain look for everything. That's because Botox, that chemical is paralyzing skeletal muscles. So you can't make the angry face. Everything is just smooth. Now, interestingly enough, this is kind of strange, but that Clostridium botulinum bacteria can't make that toxin unless it itself is infected with a virus. So there's all these strange microscopic things happening in our world. Um, now, again, back to zombies. Are zombies real? Yes, if you are a house cricket or a ladybug. House crickets normally will avoid large bodies of water. Um, they have holes throughout their body. That's how they exchange oxygen. But if they, if they fall into water, those holes will fill and they will literally drown. So normally these guys avoid water. But if they're infected with a horsehair worm larvae, 
that larvae will release a chemical that changes the brain chemistry and causes the house cricket to search out a body of water. When it drowns, the exoskeleton, the thing that makes the insect crunchy, will start to soften, and that allows the horsehair worm to emerge once it's in its adult state. So we're looking at a pathogen, a parasite, that's actually able to take over the brain chemistry. Now there's another one here, the ladybug zombie. Um, ladybugs can be stung by a female parasitic wasp. When that wasp stings the ladybug, it injects a mixture of chemicals as well as a virus. So back to that microscopic world. That will paralyze the ladybug. Then the parasitic, uh, the parasitic wasp will lay an egg in the ladybug and that larvae will hatch and mature and later eat its way out of the poor ladybug who is still in this state of paralysis. And it'll form a cocoon. So in the picture here, you can see this ladybug standing guard literally over the top of this cocoon. That protects that developing um, larvae from predators. Now it is, it has been documented that in some cases, those chemicals that were introduced into that ladybug through that sting will dissipate, they'll break down. And some of the ladybugs actually, believe it or not, actually survive this. Um, the wasp will emerge and fly off. And some of those ladybugs are lucky enough to be able to walk away afterward. There's not many of us, right, that can say that we survived a zombie infestation. All right, finally, what about humans? Um, if we look at something that's pathogenic, that's going to cause a zombie-like state in humans, um, rabies tragically is one of the pathogens you could talk about. It changes behaviors like generating aggression. It causes a fear of water, etc. One of the other ones that's been in the news lately is Toxoplasma gondii. This is the causative agent of toxoplasmosis. So this parasite will get into a rat or a mouse. And normally a rat or a mouse is terrified of its predator, the cat. But the chemistry of this infection causes that rat or mouse to be attracted to the smell of cat urine. Therefore, they get eaten by a cat who becomes the next host for this parasite. Now, unfortunately, that cat will excrete that parasite in its feces and the next host could be a human. Research is linking exposure to Toxoplasma gondii to schizophrenia in humans. So what can we do to avoid that? Number one, we can keep our cats indoors where they're much less likely to come into contact with an infected rat or mouse. It's also really good for bird populations. Um, we can also make sure we're washing our hands well after cleaning those litter boxes. But this is also why we tell women who are pregnant that they should not clean cats' litter boxes because if they get infected, there are also changes that happen in their developing baby. This is the Mendocino College Symposium. The speaker is Professor Rachel Donham on environmental toxicology and environmental justice. All right, so there's our zombie discussion. Let's go back to the history of toxicology. We had just said that the Environmental Protection Agency was established in 1970. By the 1980s, it was very well understood that toxic chemicals, toxic events, disproportionately impact low-income and minority communities. Now, the civil rights movement had occurred in the United States, the environmental movement had occurred, and those both helped to power the environmental justice movement. But 
like many things, there had to be something tragic that happened to spur this movement. And that is what we're going to talk about the Warren County, North Carolina case study. So in 1982, we saw this happen. To give a little background, um, there was a ward transformer company that produced transformers, switchgears, all kinds of different uh, electrical equipment. It was based in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it was in operation from 1964 to 2006. One of the chemicals that is used often as an insulator is a polychlorinated biphenyl or a PCB. Now we've already said PCBs were banned and that PCBs are epigenetic drivers, but in some industries, again, they are still being used. Things have to be discarded or disposed or handled in certain ways as designated by the US EPA. These are anthropogenic chemicals, meaning they're completely synthetic. We would not find these in nature. They don't have a smell or a taste. Sometimes they're colorless, sometimes they're yellow, but they do resist temperature and pressure, which makes them great insulators. So Ward Chemical Company was using a lot of PCBs during its, its activity. PCBs are not great. They cause all kinds of harm, birth defects, skin and liver problems, immune system issues and cancer. And I wanna geek out for just a second on the chemistry because people who study this think this is really fascinating and I hope you will too. So the name here is a polychlorinated biphenyl. Poly means many. The chlorinated refers to these chlorine atoms. And so here they're just representing them as a CL. So some of these you'll see have four chlorines, some have five, some have six. That's where this polychlorinated gets its name. So this class of chemicals is known to have more than two chlorine groups. The biphenyl are looking here at these structures that look a little bit like chicken wire. You'll see that there are two of them, that's the bi, and these are phenyl groups. Now from a toxicology standpoint, anytime you see chlorine and something that looks like chicken wire, you should run in the opposite direction. These are chemicals that typically don't break down either in the environment or in organisms. One of the reasons that they don't break down is that these ring structures are very, very stable. The other reason they don't break down well is that these chlorine atoms, even though they're just showing the C and the L there, they're huge. So when detoxification enzymes that normally would break down chemicals try to get to these, they're physically blocked by these chlorine atoms. So again, PCBs are bad news, but they're used widely, right, for those insulations. So now, in the production of those components, those electrical components, the Ward Company ended up with a lot of PCB contaminated oil. So Ward hired a man named Robert J. Burns to take PCB contaminated oil to be recycled. And the story goes that there was a fee he was paid that he should have paid to the recycler. Instead, he and his son, in the months of June through August of 1978, decided to do their own recycling program. Um, they went out at night and just sprayed 31,000 gallons of this contaminated oil onto roadways. So highway shoulders in 14 counties were impacted. All told, it was about 240 miles of highway shoulders that were covered. Now, luckily that oil had a black color, so people knew something had happened. It was investigated, they were found out. Both Burns and Ward were sent to prison. But again, remember these chemicals don't break down. And so waterways, creeks, lakes, and rivers are permanently um, polluted with this chemical. 
And because the soil was the main source of that pollution that was trickling down, they wanted the soil to be removed. So here's where we have a problem. We've got tons of PCB contaminated soil that has to go somewhere. The state of North Carolina chose a county, Warren County, to be the site of the hazardous waste landfill. Now I wanna give you kind of a picture of Warren County in 1970 at census, 65% of the population there was African-American. It was an incredibly poor county. It had very little political clout in the state. To give you an idea of how poor um, people were here, 40% of the homes did not have indoor plumbing. So luckily the news got out and a massive protest ensued. Um, it was coordinated by the people of Warren County, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the United Church of Christ. And it was a huge protest. Again, it made national news. More than 500 protesters were arrested during this. Um, tragically, it did not stop the state from putting that toxic landfill in Warren County. But the backlash, the publicity that this generated strengthened that environmental justice movement. So the beginning of the EJ movement happened in 1994 and 1992. Um, the EPA developed the Office of Environmental Justice and President Clinton signed into executive order the statement that minority populations and low-income populations needed to be protected and we needed to address what was happening in those communities. So where are we now? This is gonna be a little bit of alphabet soup, but hang in there, we'll get through it. So the EPA, remember that's the Environmental Protection Agency, works with the NIEHS, that is the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to ensure environmental justice. One of the divisions of the NIHS is called DIRT. It's a horrible acronym, but it's the Division of Extramural Research and Training. They are really responsible for researching what's happening primarily in low-income communities. They get grants to do that work. And if we look at the breakdown of the grants that they are getting, it really shows you where we're seeing a lot of these toxic events. So 45% of their grants are for Hispanic and Latino populations, 38% are for African-American populations, and 14% are for tribal populations. One of the other things that the EPA passed in 1980 was the CERCLA. This is the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. You can see why we call it CERCLA. It is the act that allows the EPA to identify when we have a site that is heavily polluted or contaminated. We call those sites Superfund sites and the government is required to deal with them, to remediate them to healthy levels. Now, if you are a toxicological nerd like I am, you might wanna know if there's any Superfund sites near you. And so I have a link there, epa.gov backslash Superfund backslash search Superfund sites where you live, where you can actually look up what is around you in terms of toxic Superfund sites. So I did it for the Ukiah area, thinking about focusing on the Ukiah campus of Mendocino College. And there are two Superfund sites that are close. One is the Sulphur Bank Mercury Mine. The other is the Coastwood Preserving Area in Ukiah. And we're gonna focus on this first one. I wanna point out here that in this statement, they are talking about this being a Superfund site and that meaningful community involvement is facilitated with the most at-risk communities, which include 
the alum colony of Pomo Indians, other Native American tribes, subsistence fishers, Kuluik residents, etc. So again, if we're thinking about this from an environmental justice standpoint and we're looking at who's impacted, keep that in mind. So here's our next case study. We're going to look at Mercury and Clear Lake. And I'm sure that all of you have been to Clear Lake at some point, Mount Canocti in the background. It's really beautiful. We're going to focus on one part of Clear Lake, and that is Clear Lake Oaks. This is the location of a Superfund site. It started off in 1856 as the Sulphur Bank Mine, where people were mining borax. And borax was used as a cleaner. It was also used in ammunition. They discovered sulfur and they wanted to use that sulfur. So in 1865, it was converted to a sulfur extracting mine. Um, and they probably harvested about 2 million pounds of sulfur. And then because of the gold rush, 1873 to 1957, and the recognition that mercury can be used to harvest gold, they discovered and started to mine mercury ore. And it's estimated during that time period, they mined about 4,500 tons. Herman Pitt was a geothermal site. And if you think your working conditions at your job are horrible, um, be glad that you did not work at the Herman Pitt. So this was again, a geothermal site. So we saw lots of steam, very hot conditions. In fact, the conditions were so hot that if workers were left down in the pit for more than 15 minutes, their body temperatures would reach fatal amounts, fatal levels. So they would drop workers down, the workers would work for 15 minutes, they would hoist them up and literally cool them down by spraying them with a fire hose and they would send them back down. Now at the time, workers who were white were paid $4 a day to do this work. Chinese workers were paid a dollar a day to do this work. So immigrant Chinese workers were primarily those who suffered through these working conditions. I wanna give a little Shout out to Dr. Jessup. He works for the EPA and he is someone who has a lot of knowledge about this sulfur bank mine and the history. And I came across a PowerPoint he had produced and he was gracious enough to let me steal his pictures to use them. So a lot of these pictures um, are actually from his work. So thank you to Dr. Jessup for that. This is showing you again, a Clear Lake map. I wanna point out here's the sulfur bank mine. Right next door to that is the Alum Homo Reservation. That Indian colony was established in 1949. The last year of operation of the Herman Pitt was 1957. Now, anytime you mine mercury, you never get all of it out of the soil or out of the bedrock. So we know that any kind of waste rock or tailings will be contaminated with mercury. When the mine closed, they didn't know what to do with it, so they bulldozed it right into the lake. So they estimate they made about 150 acres of waste rock disappear by doing that. Um, some of it sunk, some of it became shoreline. So it's estimated they made 400 feet of lakeward shoreline extending out into that Oaks arm of Clear Lake. And about 2 million cubic yards of contaminated soil remained on the site. And why do we care about mercury and methylmercury? Some of you may have played with mercury as a child. Mercury was a chemical in thermometers. It's this really cool metal to play with. Please don't do that because it's toxic. It's even more toxic if bacteria add a methyl group to it. Methylation changes mercury. It makes it much more toxic. Just like lead can cause brain damage, so can mercury. You can get that peripheral neuropathy. You can get mood swings. People lose the ability to swallow, to talk, to speak, to move, etc. 
Some of the dramatic mood swings we see with people who have methylmercury poisoning was modeled in the Mad Hatter of Alice in Wonderland. His character was actually modeled after people who had methylmercury poisoning. The other problem with methylmercury is that it bioaccumulates. As we go from small organisms or even water up to bigger organisms, the amount of mercury increases. So once it's in the body, you can't get it out. So over here, they're showing you back biomagnification. And here they're trying to describe in water that there would be somewhere like 0.1 parts per trillion. So that's what this PPT is. As we move into uh, aquatic plants and then into small fish and then into fish that eat those small fish, you can see that that amount has dramatically increased. By the time you get to a fish eating bird and their egg, this is a toxic level. Over here, they're trying to show you methylmercury amounts based on the size of the little red dot. So you can see when we get into fish eating mammals, fish eating birds, humans, right? Fish eating mammal, um, that the level of mercury is really high. So here again is a map of Clear Lake and it's showing you methylmercury concentrations in different locations. So again, the sulfur bank mine was here. The methylmercury, that's this lowest one here, the methylmercury concentration there in that water is seven nanograms per gram. Elsewhere, it's at two nanograms per gram. So we're seeing it concentrate, but certainly not just in that oak's arm of Clear Lake. In 1990, the EPA recognized this was a huge problem, made this a Superfund site. Um, estimates show that at least 100 tons of mercury have escaped into Clear Lake. A lot of that has to do with that Hermit and Pit uh, and, and mining. Some of it just has to do with mercury being in the local um, rocks and leaching out into the waterway. The OEHA, Office of Emergency Health Hazard Assessment, has set an advisory for eating fish from Clear Lake. So I wanted to point out a couple things here. Methylmercury, again, is neurotoxic. It causes changes in the brain. It's gonna be more impactful for small people like children and very, very problematic for children who are not yet born. So children who are developing in utero. That is why we're seeing a difference here for women of childbearing years and children. That advisory is different than the advisory for women who are past childbearing years or for men. But I want to point out, as we get into the bigger and bigger fish, especially when we get into the bass species, notice that we're saying men and older women should only have one serving of this per week. And children and women who could become pregnant should not eat this at all. Again, that's that bioaccumulation. Um, I will say this is not just a problem in Clear Lake. A lot of Northern California lakes have this issue with mercury just because of the naturally occurring mercury in the geology of our region. So what has been done? Again, this image is from Dr. Jessup. I wanted to point out here is that Oaks Arm of Clear Lake. This kind of aqua border is showing you what's now called the Herman Impoundment. This was the site of the Herman Pit. And this is the Alum Indian Colony right next door. This is filled with acidic water that is completely mercury contaminated. Um, it goes down about 90 feet covers about 23 acres and it is only 750 feet from the lake. So what has the EPA done? There's been a lot of work trying to remediate the site. Everything from building earthen dams to making sure that that water can't flow into the lake to block flooding, 
They've removed contaminated soil from tribal colony yards and put in clean fill dirt. They've rerouted the road um, so that people weren't volatilizing the dust containing the mercury leading into the Alum Indian colony. They've now um, currently are working on a focused feasibility study and a human health risk assessment. It's not done. And when we talk about a chemical like mercury releasing to the environment, it may never be done. But the EPA again has done an amazing amount of work trying to prevent human contact. And again, it's not just humans, right? Environmental toxicology looks at other species as well. So our lovely bald eagles are also very thankful that we're trying to prevent contamination of their fish. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposium here on KZYX. Today's speaker is Professor Rachel Donham on environmental toxicology and environmental justice. All right, our next case study takes us to Flint, Michigan, and I'm assuming you've all heard about the water issues there and the lead. Um, Flint, Michigan has a population of 98,000 people, 41.2% live below, below the poverty line. Um, unfortunately, this city has people who are very desperate um, and it was ranked as one of the most dangerous cities in relation to crime in the US. The population percentage of African-Americans there happens to be 57%. So in 2011, the city had a major deficit, $25 million deficit, and the state took over. And one of the things they tried to do to decrease the amount of money needed to run the city was they changed the water source to the Flint River. Before that, it had been coming from Lake Huron. The problem with the Flint River is that it is notoriously known to have chemicals and fecal material contaminating it. It has a lot of chlorine and chloride ions that causes the water to be very corrosive and chloride leaches lead. Why do we worry about lead? Well, just like methylmercury, it causes neurological issues, especially in children. So in adults, we can have memory loss, headaches, irritability. We can have muscle pain, cardiovascular and kidney problems. In children, the behavioral problems, the lower IQ and the learning disabilities tend to be permanent. So we really wanna protect kids from lead. If you have a home built before 1986, you have probably lead pipes lead fixtures and lead soldiers, the connections between those fixtures and pipes. After 1986, homes typically didn't have lead pipes, but you're still seeing lead exposure because of those connections. So what can leach lead from those pipes? Hot water, corrosive or acidic water, uh, water sitting in pipes for a long period of time, and the absence of a protective film inside those lead pipes. So the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, when it switched the water, failed to follow the lead and copper regulation, which said you have to add an anti-corrosive to these lead pipes to prevent them from leaching lead. Instead, they said, let's wait for six months and see what happens. What happened was that residents complained, rightfully so, about the smell and the taste of their water, and they started to recognize that kids were having some really significant learning issues. So the residents worked in cooperation with the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and Virginia Tech, and they started going out and sampling water. Now remember, this water was supposed to have that remediation step. They were supposed to put that anti-corrosive in that water in January of this year. This is showing you the EPA actionable level so in other words, if lead is above this level, above about 20 parts per billion, they need to fix it. Um, they found in February that the lead levels were above 100 parts per billion. 
And in March, they were up to almost 400 parts per billion. And actually the highest they recorded was 1000 parts per billion. So obviously they failed to do that. So the water tasted bad again, it looked bad. The rust discolored it. Bacteria produce sulfur dioxide, which stinks like something rotting. And the rust and iron that was produced um, actually binds to chlorine. And so they didn't have enough disinfectant. So we had pathogenic bacteria in the water as well. In 2016, President Obama declared a state of emergency in the city. FEMA became involved and we saw massive lawsuits. By March of 2017, the EPA had awarded $100 million to the city to upgrade, which meant that they had to replace pipes. They had to make sure that households had a safe water supply. So $400 million of state and federal spending um, has been done as of 2019. Um, residents have filters and a clean water source and people, 95,000 people were awarded $650 million from the city and the state. That's a great outcome, but unfortunately, again, it doesn't do anything really to reverse the damage of that lead. I wanna point out lead in the water is not just a problem in Flint. California has a problem with lead pipes as well. The Bay Area, downtown LA, and Fresno also all report these high levels. The 93701 zip code in particular in Fresno has very high levels of lead. Children under the age of six are reporting elevated le lead levels. And the rate there is about 14% of kids that doctors are seeing this in. To give you an example, in Flint, only 5% of kids had elevated lead levels at that age. So this is not just in poor communities. There are other sources of lead as well. It's not just in water, paint, soil, toys, and cosmetics can also be sources for lead. All right, our very last case study here and probably the biggest and most important case study in our lives is that of climate change. We could spend a whole semester talking about climate change. I'm gonna to try to wrap it up here in just a couple of minutes. There are negative impacts when we talk about our climate warming. We know that there are physical health implications, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. We know that mental health deteriorates as temperatures increase. Schizophrenics, for example, have many more episodes when the weather is hotter. Air, food, and water resources are limited as the climate changes. And because climate change causes more significant and more frequent storms, we have issues with shelter, power, sanitation, and diseases. Some of that sanitation and disease issue has to do with flooding and septic systems being overtaken by that water. But we're also seeing species of mosquitoes that normally would just inhabit the equator moving more toward the poles. They are bringing with them malaria and dengue and Zika, et cetera. Now, why is this an environmental justice issue? This impacts all of us. But those that are socially and economically disadvantaged are going to be the ones who are at most risk. In the US, that translates to communities of color. It translates to immigrants and those of low income. Depending on where you live, your health, your income, what resources are available to you and language barriers, all of those are going to influence your outcome. I just wanna point out one thing about heat again. Um, Heat-related deaths obviously increase with climate change. And climate change with the heat increases or worsens diabetes, heart disease, and asthma. The African-American population tends to have those diseases more frequently than others. And so we're again looking at a population that's at more risk. In 2011, California completed a study looking at heat waves and infant mortality rates. And unfortunately, there is a positive correlation, especially with black infants. 
Reason being that black infants are three times more likely to live in substandard or crowded housing. And a lot of times they lack air conditioning. So they're really literally just getting too hot. Um, in those areas, we don't see trees and green spaces. We see a lot more asphalt. Asphalt absorbs solar radiation. And so we end up with a tremendous increase in temperature in those regions. So as a friendly reminder, there is no planet B. We need to be protecting what we have. Now, last week, Hawaii became the first state in the US to declare a climate emergency. And you might think, well, that's just Hawaii. They're out in the middle of the ocean. They don't have much to do with the mainland, but almost 13% of the global population now lives in an area that has also declared a climate emergency. So what can we do? What can we do to fight for environmental justice? We need to recognize damage and try to remediate it. Think about those Superfund sites where we need to go in and fix that. We need to be equitable when we make decisions. So think about those populations that are sensitive, right? Think about the children in particular because their dose will be higher. Educate, get your population educated so we can have citizen scientists that can work in partnerships with universities, build greener, build cleaner, and talk about it, right? Talk about it, vote for politicians at every level of government, whether it's local or national, that support the movement toward a more clean environment so that we don't have these toxic tragedies. And if you wanna know more, um, I'm gonna show you here a couple of books that are really cool. Um, Silent Spring, I already mentioned. If you thought the history of toxicology was really fascinating, there's this great book, Greek Fire, Poison Arrows and Scorpion Bombs, which looks at biological and chemical warfare in the ancient world. This one um, on the bottom, on the left, our stolen future. This really looks at chemicals and their impacts on human reproductive success. These other three really focus on environmental justice. So toxic communities from the ground up and dumping in big sea. These are all great reads. They're available, um, shop local. I'm sure that if Mendocino Book Company doesn't have them, they will happily order them for you. And just one more little totally self serving message here. Um, this summer I'm teaching Bio 245 from Mendocino College, which is Introduction to Environmental Toxicology. So this class will cover some of the information we talked about tonight and go into details about organ systems and impacts of chemicals on those organ systems. There are no prerequisites. It's meant for the general public and there are no textbooks required, even though I think you should read all these because they're great. So I almost made it on time. That is the end of what I have prepared. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been really, really interesting. Um, if you enjoyed this talk, um, when you want to share with others, it is going to be available through um, the Mendocino College, uh, mendocino.edu slash symposium website. We will post this so you can watch it later if you want to, or go back and find those books. And we do post the for further reading as well. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Nika, for organizing all of this. Shout out to you. Fantastic oh, job. Thank you. It's been really fun. This has been the Mendocino College Symposium, hosted by Nika Aguirre and featuring Professor Rachel Donham. Her speech was entitled From Zombies to Planet B, Environmental Toxicology and Justice. Look for the return of the Mendocino College Symposium in the fall of 2021. Thanks to Nika Aguirre and Mendocino College for bringing these fascinating and timely lectures to the KZYX Airwaves, and thank you for listening.